Hello everyone, I'm Sophie Marin and this is Arts Dynamics Talks. This began as a live stream series on Facebook during COVID-19 when I started interviewing artists and creatives and changemakers within arts, culture and entertainment all around the world. I wanted to learn more about what they are doing to pivot, what's happening in their corner of the world and also what their future plans are post-COVID-19. As it happens, this began as a 12-part mini live stream series, but is now growing into more episodes. So thank you all so much for tuning in and for listening. We've also been uh, asked to do this as a podcast, which is why you can now hear the audio versions on Spotify and other platforms as well. So happy listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. For more information about Arts Dynamics, go to artsdynamics.com and connect up with us on social media. So with that, have a great day and enjoy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Arts Dynamics number three. My name is Sophie Marin. I'm the founder of Arts Dynamics, and I am thrilled to have with us today Will Reed from Japan. And I met Will a few years back when I was in, in Japan myself on an entrepreneurial study tour. And uh, I am so excited to have you here today, Will, <laughs> and for people to get to know you better. So hi yeah. and welcome. I, I should say I'm not actually from Japan. <laughs> I sometimes <laughs> confuse that because I speak Japanese fluently. And mm. oh, I, I sometimes say, speak to Japanese. I say, I don't know if you noticed this, but I'm actually not Japanese, which is obvious if you look at it. And that usually gets some laughs. But. Yeah, that's so true. That's so true. And uh, I mean, we, as you know, these talks are about arts and we are here to sort of uh, speak to arts voices from around the world. And what really struck out to me when, when you and I met when we were there in Japan, uh, but like you said, you are bilingual and you've got, I'd love to hear more about that in this conversation. Mm-hmm. But uh, what I really loved was we've had some really great conversations about uh, because you do martial arts and calligraphy and you are very well versed in, in Japanese arts and you have this sort of deeper understanding of it all. And and I just would love for you to share a little bit more with the people that are now watching who you are and what you do and yeah, what you're up to today. Yeah. Okay, well, it's uh, to make a very long story short, this is a real rush for I was born in 1952. Uh, next month, I turn 68. That's the story. <laughs> okay, that's the short version. <laughs> but actually, uh, uh, there are a couple of landmarks in that story that uh, are important. When I was 11 in 1963, I was walking home from school with a friend, and we got surrounded by these older boys and were bullies, and they they didn't hurt us, but they kind of terrorized us. And that just made me realize there was absolutely nothing I could do to defend myself. So the next day, I went to a bookstore and found a book called The Power of Aikido, which is a martial art. I didn't have any teacher. I didn't have any dojo to practice at, and uh, but I did have two younger brothers, so I was able to experiment on them, book in hand, and uh, I kind of developed a taste for Aikido. Nine years later, 1972, I was in the college bookstore, and in, in the meantime, I'd been interested in Zen and Japanese culture, but I found that same book, and it was like, oh, I remember this, and the book next to it was a book by my the man who became my teacher. It was a book called Aikido and Daily Life. And I said, my God, this is a philosophy and it's a practice and they're living masters. I'm going to Japan. So I did. (laughs) So that was 1972. It was better at the time than going to Vietnam. I'd love to go to Vietnam now, but that was not a good time to go. And uh, uh, so, yeah, that's what got me started. And then I came back, graduated a degree in Japanese language, made my way back to Japan and have been here pretty much ever since, like between four and five decades. And yeah. doing that time, being uh, studying Aikido, so I'm still at it, and then calligraphy as well. And so, yeah, that's uh, that's really what started. So, I, I think I call that story "Bad Bullies, Good Karma." <laughs> and I tell them, I say, yeah. if I could meet those guys with what I know now, mm. I would step right up and take their hand and shake it and thank them for putting me on this path. <laughs> yeah. And then afterwards, I would throw them. But for as what you did to me back in 1963, take that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really strange how things work out that way. 
Yeah, it, it's really strange. And and for those who don't know me or, or or also know my background, I've always been drawn to martial arts and to sort of the deeper teachings of martial arts ever since I was at a very young age. So for me to go to China and to Japan on that study tour and their meeting with you and you gave us a whole day and, and really, I mean, obviously it's just sort of a snapshot of, of mm. obviously there's so much more, but the teachings that you gave us that day and, and you also taught us how to do calligraphy and, and sort of the deeper meaning of samurai and the Japanese culture. Mm. It was extraordinary, I have to say. It meant so much. And like I said, I'm, I'm really pleased that you are here today also to share also, because of your background and your expertise and also knowing different cultures and now knowing a lot about this culture, but also I'd love to hear your take also on what's happening in the world right now and, and how that sort of links in with what you are doing. And Yeah. Well, can I start with the my take on the Japanese arts? Or yes, they have a peculiar, peculiar approach. And it's different from the Western arts in some ways, but I think... Fundamentally, it's the way the Western arts used to be because it, it, you learn a lot by imitation and making copies from master copies. And so I think modern people are a bit impatient with that. They don't want to learn representational drawing. They, I, I think in some art schools, they don't even teach it anymore. Uh, they, everybody wants to be instantly Picasso without realizing that Picasso himself was a master at representational drawing. He just chose not to do it. There's a difference between not doing it because you can't do it and trying something creative and choosing to do something creative, even though you can do it. There's just a dis, I think it's discipline. Mm. And also in a repertoire of, uh, of master models, master copies. And this is exactly the way the Japanese arts are passed down. But I think that traditionally in the West, it was that way too. There's a great quote by uh, Samuel Johnson, who was a British wit, philosopher, theologian, uh, you were a lot of things in those days, you know, but he lived in the 1700s, these great, clever quotes. And this, because he was a writer, this young man brought him his, uh, a sample of his work for his review. So Mr. Johnson, Dr. Johnson, can you please um, review my work? So he looked it over and he said, hmm, your writing is both original and good. Hmm. You know, pleased to hear this. So it's, the problem is the part that's good is not original, and the part that's original is not good. <laughs> I just right? But I think, <laughs> isn't that a great, I mean, and all his quotes are like, just beautifully so witty. And so, but anyway, I think it's also quite profound because what is original is actually, I think it's a combination of just drawing so much from so many great masters of the past. And then it kind of converges to a point where you just emerge with something that it adds your own DNA to it, your own perspective. Yeah. I mean, Picasso himself said that good artists uh, copy great artists steal. So, I mean, it was just like, yeah, I mean, you have to draw on something. And mm. in, in the Japanese arts, they provide you with these models or called kata or tehon in calligraphy. And you try the best you can do to make uh, a copy of the work. The problem is, it's not just making a copy of the shape. You have to copy the spirit as well. And that is the challenging part. And then you get this thing, the 10,000 hour rule. You've heard that, I'm sure, you know, that to really master something top, top level. I think Malcolm Gladwell came up with that. And now everybody saw you have to spend 10,000 hours. Well, I actually did the calculation. If you want to do that in a year, you have to practice deep, intensive practice with really deep practice with really good instruction for 27 hours a day. Good luck. <laughs> it's not going to happen in one year, right? But even in three, three, three years, it's like nine hours a day, and you, it's not going to happen, right? But even in, in 10 years, it's still three hours a day. And so it does take 10, 20, 30 years. It takes a lifetime, really, to master. However, you could also say, yeah, if you want to be Mozart, yeah, if you want to be Tiger Woods. And actually, I recently discovered a book by a man named Josh Kaufman, he did a TED talk called on the first 20 hours, and he challenged this concept. In fact, he has a chapter called Damn You, Gl Malcolm Gladwell, <laughs> for propagating this idea. Because, yeah, if you want to be like the, the top person in history, but most of us don't want to or need to even go that far. But you want to be decent and, you, and we're, we're busy. Let's face it. You don't have that kind of time. 
Mm. So he said, well, what if you could really practice smartly and with really good master tips and an intensive focus just for 20 hours? How far could you go? And he tested himself with five different uh, fields, uh, skills. One was the Japanese or Chinese game of Go, which is the surrounding territory with stones. Very challenging. And he actually got, he played against computer. He got to a pretty decent level with 20 hours of practice and some master tips. So the game of Go, he taught himself how to play some songs on the ukulele. Not bad. Taught himself a yoga routine and actually made some good progress with it. And he taught himself programming to the point where he could actually program a web page using computer code. Not bad. But the one that impressed me the most was he taught himself how to windsurf. He was actually windsurfing without, you know, that is so hard. I mean, I, I tried that. It's like, whoa, you're fighting the wind. It's, it's really hard to even stand on the thing, much less keep the sailboard up. But he did this. He wrote about it. So it was r- literally about a month of observing himself in these things. And he came out with this thing called the first 20 hours. And one of the things was that he, you, you have to have really master tips from people who've mastered it and really focus your practice intelligently and stay disciplined, stay focused and benchmark yourself and measure the before after. So he wrote this book. I said, that is really cool. I want to test that. So I teach at the College in, uh, of International College of Liberal Arts in near Mount Fuji. So what a great place to experiment because I got students and in all these things like Aikido and calligraphy and Namba is art of physical finesse and uh, Aikido and, uh, and career design. That's what I teach. But I said, I'm going to test this out on my college students because like you have 15 uh, weeks in a semester, you meet twice a week for about an hour and 15 minutes, but with cleanup and, you know, it's always t- you have basically about 30 hours. And then some of the courses are even shorter. It's about 20 hours. I said, perfect. I'm just going to try that. And Sophie, I really was so proud of them. I just distilled the most that I could. I said, how do you hold the brush? I just described what I did. And the stuff that took me 40, 50 years to learn, but I never really thought about writing it down. Well, I had in some versions, but I just put it down in bullet points. And then I I would demonstrate it. I said, keep this in mind. Don't let your mind be distracted. And I'll give you feedback. Let's see how far you can go. And I'll show you later. I'll show you some slides to show you how awesome the progress some of my students made in calligraphy. It's just, I said, this is just awesome. And I said, and you guys, it's actually usually more girls than guys. I don't know. They just, they're better focused concentration. But I said, you guys, girls have set the bar. Nobody can tell me this is too hard. Mm. I could say, yeah, well, you could do it. And they say, yeah, but you've been doing it forever and ever. And you have the, the you know, you were probably born doing no. <laughs> when I came to Japan, I was a beginner in Japanese. I said, I didn't start how to speak Japanese, like to complete you know, native speaker level. And they're like, I studied, I studied like a madman. I completely immersed myself in the environment. And I think the one thing that I did that was different from what a lot of people do is you get in over your head and oh, like I'm drowning and I can't, I can't keep up. It's too hard. And most people don't like that because it's embarrassing. You make mistakes and you embarrass yourself, especially in a foreign language. You say things that have other meanings than you intended. People laughing at you. Or you say something and you shock people and you don't even realize why you look in the dictionary. Oh, my God, I can't believe I said that because it wasn't intended. Right. And that's not a comfortable experience. I get that. But I was so fascinated with just the ambiguity and the like I called it the mosaic of sound. I could not understand what was going on around me, but I listened to and I'd hear sound patterns. Like I remember I actually remember some of them. I kept hearing this. Sore I hear it on the news. Or, what is that? And I, I recognize it's always on the news. And then I actually watched it on the, I saw it on the television. It's, ah, that's, they're referring to a research report or something. And then I looked it up and it says, according to, and now I've got the phrase, right? And then it's like, when you hear, when you know something, suddenly you hear it all the time. And then you don't hear it anymore because it's, it's just absorbed. But that, that learning process just got me on fire. And I thought, I think I was so lucky to actually come to Japan at the age of 20 because it's so easy to say, I'm an adult now, I know what I'm doing, you know, and you can get hardened in your attitudes. The hardening of the arteries is bad, but hardening of the attitudes is also very bad. And I see it, you know, around 1920s, you can see some students just starting to get arrogant and, or it's, I think it's about ego. They don't want to be embarrassed. 
They don't want to show in front of their friends that, ah, you can't do that. Ah, you, you idiot. You know, <laughs> I mean, that starts even earlier in grade school. You get to the point, though, where that doesn't matter so much as the benefits of the learning. And you actually can laugh at those things. You can tell those stories, the mistakes you made. And then people kind of, oh, yeah, great. Let's laugh about it. And so that, that got me into this process of continual learning, lifelong learning, and it never stopped. And I, I remember I was doing Aikido for 10 years, and my father asked me, haven't you graduated from that Aikido yet? It hadn't even occurred to me that you would graduate, because Do means way or path, and all the art, Japanese arts end with Do, Aikido, Sado, the tea ceremony, Iaido, the art of drawing the sword. And so they're all the, 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 the Michi, the path has a direction, but no destination. Mm. You never arrive, right? So to me, that was like, so I, I told my father, I said, you know, in the Japanese arts, I forget exactly the words I use, but it says, you never graduate. And my father's American. He said, are you sure you're not being taken advantage of? <laughs> so funny. It was like, I, and that perspective hadn't even occurred to me. And I thought, well, yeah. Four years to graduate from college, he's still at it for 10 years. He must not be a very good student or he's been sucked into this thing where you just keep paying the fees, you know, your whole life. Hmm. But I, it wasn't it wasn't either of those. Yeah. Well, I yeah. mean, uh, it, it's fascinating. And, and the way also you say uh, the, the difference between the West and, and the East, the way they, they perceive yeah. things and, and things starting. And, and I remember that from our study tour in, in uh, both yeah. in Japan and in China, where but where they also talked about sort of in, in Japan, we met this businessman. Were you there at that meeting where we met? And he talked about sort of 1000 year ahead planning. Uh, no, I, I was in that meeting, but I heard about it. Yeah. yeah, it was pretty eye opening. Whereas here in West, we sort of plan and for us in the arts sometimes it's sort of planning the next days or weeks you know when we've got projects coming up and here we are listening to this very successful businessman who talked about sort of the asian way and the japanese way of doing business and the way they think and plan they plan for generations ahead so when you say path i i totally resonate with what you say how old, how old was that man yeah, that's a very good question, and I can go back to you. <laughs> I don't know his age. <laughs> he was not that young, but I don't know his age. But he's probably not a young man, I'm guessing. Mm. Because it's a very traditional attitude. And actually, there's a, a big crisis now among the crafts, like the support calligraphy, for example, the ink stones. Ink stones and handmade paper and brushes and uh, the sumi ink, the ink sticks, these are traditions that have been around for 1200 years or 700 years have been in families for generations and like we were just talking this morning in my calligraphy class you have these ink stones and it's a specialty of the province where i live they actually cut it out of the it's like slate they cut it out of the mountains and they they polish it and then you know you you rub the ink on this and it's a, a beautiful process but it takes years to learn and 200 was it 100 years ago in the, in the 20s there were 200 craftsmen in that village Today, there's one. He's around 70 years old. He's getting tired. And how many successors do you think he has? Mm. Zero. Yeah. And, and that story is you hear it over and over and over again. So you have these things that have been going on for hundreds or even over a thousand years and have been in families for generations, 21 generations, 12 generations. It's not unusual at all. But the younger generation is not interested. And some of the people are not interested in buying those things if there's no demand for it and it's kind of like really hard work to be an apprentice uh and you have to clean and you have to do all you know young people just and there may be no market for it mm. so it's really a sad situation but there is a possibility that I, I told the students you know by the time you graduate from college maybe a few years later maybe in 10 years some of these traditions are going to be just stories from the past Oh, that's so it's sad. Really and at the same, same time, also with the digital revolution and the things that are happening yeah, yeah. now, people moving online, uh, based on what you're saying as well, this is sort of this uh, big uh, shift. Uh, but yeah. is there any way where the new digital tools and strategies that are out yeah. there can support the traditions? That is actually what I was about to say. You read my mind. Perfect. <laughs> it's not just the uh, fault of the young people, obviously, because you can't blame them. They don't, you know, you just sit in the mountain and grindstone all day and you can't talk to anybody and you have to clean the toilets too, you know, and then they're going to pay you like slave wages. Yeah, I get that. But at the same time, the older craftsmen are so into that they can't really even talk about, they can actually, if they, if you can draw them out, 
they tell wonderful stories. I watched a thing the other day on how they make ink sticks. And this guy, he was, this was a family, it's been in the, his family for five generations. And um, his son was actually joined a big company, he was going to be a businessman. And then his son read that, that the, the ink stick industry was dying out. And he realized, hey, I'm in that, my father's in that business, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, maybe I should consider that. So he went back. And so now at least his son is doing it, but their major competitor went out. So they're the only one left. And so what's going to happen to him? But the, the NHK did this wonderful documentary and they interviewed him. And uh, I guess if you can draw these craftsmen and artists out, they have such a story to tell. And his story was because ink is black, right? Ink is black. I mean, it's maybe some shades of black. He has produced more than 200 shades of black. And we're not talking 50 shades of gray here. This is, no. <laughs> this is the, the, the subtle, the, and typically even Sumi ink is sold in five shades of black. And they, they all look black on the surface, but mm. depending on how thinly this ink is spread and how the light hits it, they might have a tinge of purple or a tinge of sort of uh, gold or red or yellow. And so, and they would actually be sold that way. And uh, so there are at least those tents, five shades of black, but he's produced over 200. And he was kind of, they showed him looking up at the sky and he says, I'm in search of the ultimate black all my entire life. He's 55 years old. He's been doing this whole life. So I've been in search of the ultimate black. And the question was, where are you going to find it? And he says, I've already found it. I just haven't been able to produce it. Are you curious to, to know where he found it? Yeah. It was on the wing of the raven, sometimes known as a crow, but the crow doesn't have a very good image. So we'll call it a raven, especially, he said, when it's wet after the rain and the light hits it and you can see rainbow colors. And then when it dries, it's this matte black surface. It's just, he's just, he's so poetic, you know. And so that's what we need. We need people to get their stories out. And actually that, Sophie, that reminds me of another thing. I just recently did a, an article on the ninja. Ninja is so popular, right? I have a friend who works at Google and he, and I asked him, what is, what is the most searched term about J Japanese culture in the world? Mm. He has access to all the backend information. What do you think it is? Well, you said it, Ninja. Exactly. <laughs> Good guess. <laughs> it might be because I have this next to me. <laughs> in honor. <laughs> in the spirit of this conversation. There's like 10 times more searches for ninja than there are for samurai or budo, right? Mm. And, and so this was so interesting. So I thought, so then I was asked to write an article about it. And I thought, okay, I'm going to, and they gave me one page. So I don't have a lot of space to say it. So I thought, what can I, and, and, the, and the question they asked me is, what is it about Ninja that appeals to foreign people? My first response was, are you sure you're asking the right person? <laughs> I'm not sure I have that perspective anymore, but I, but I can remember. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I spent some time overseas. But so I thought, okay, there's probably three layers to the population that's interested in Ninja. The largest layer, the thickest layer by far in terms of numbers of people I would call the dreamers. Uh, they're the ones that are interested in a cool Japan culture, anime, the fantasy Naruto, you know, the, you know, the putting the palm on your palm and just spinning out like shooting stars like this. And they play all the video games and there's a huge market for that. And you got to love them because they bring in, they actually sell more anime. I don't know if people know this, but Japan's economy sells far more anime than cars. Mm. By uh, not I'm not comparing units. I'm comparing you know yen, the volume of the you know they can. I'm not saying they can do without the car industry, but they really depend on that. And so yeah, and it, and it makes it people interested in Japan. And it's kind of a lead-in, but still, it's a fantasy world. So the dreamers are interested in entertainment. Nothing wrong with that. There's a lot more of them than there are of not right. But there's another layer below that. It's not as many people, and I would call those the storytellers. And those are the people who want to hear stories and stories includes his story, his story. And so they're the ones who say, well, did they, could they really do that? You know, did that really mm -hmm. happen? And then they start to learn about it. This is what, did you know, for example, the word ninja was, do you know when the word ninja was first used? No, you have to tell us. 
in the 1920s, long after the, all these people are saying, you know, it was invented by a novelist who were writing about the, and actually they use the same character, they just pronounce it differently, shinobi. And again, it was that, ver in the 1920s, it wasn't all the anime and stuff, but it was novels. Mm -hmm. and, and so there's, they start to learn, so wow, that's really cool. Were, were there real ninja? People ask me that, you can ask me now, are there still ninja in Japan? Yeah, tell me, are there still ninjas in Japan? <laughs> There are indeed, and in fact, I know at least 20 of them, and I'm very good friends with three or four of them. And, and yeah. how do you define ninja, right? Exactly. So, okay, so I would say uh, they are people who can do all of the things that you see. I mean, not this, because that's that's not realistic. That was invented. But they can do the shuriken. They can uh, live in the mountains for months and survive. They're survivors. They can do the waterfall training. They can walk silently. They can hide. They can do all that stuff that's sort of part of the entertainment. But they also have the ninja philosophy, and but they're really practicing. In fact, I know one, and and I asked him. I called him the other day. He's like one of the top ninja uh, performers in Japan. He 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 like steals the show when he goes overseas. He doesn't really like to go overseas, but he, everybody loves it. He's so good at it. And so I said, Ah, oh, Sensei, what are you what are you doing now? And he said, Yeah, well, all our shows have been canceled. Oh, really? Well, sorry to hear this. No, no, I've I've been farming the field next, like my neighbor had a field that was untilled. And uh, I said, are you doing it for the exercise? No, I'm researching how the ancient uh, or the middle age uh, ninja would use farm weapons in various ways that could also be weapons, but also implements that would not be seen as suspicious. Mm. He never stops learning, right? And he's staying fit. I thought mm. that's so awesome, right? Yeah. So anyway, so there are the real ninja and I know some of them. And, and now they are reaching out more and more to tell the story. And uh, you can actually get a master's degree in ninja studies now at Mie University, which is really cool. That is pretty awesome. Yeah. Need to look into that for sure. <laughs> yeah. I think somebody realized there is huge business here, but it's not just about the entertainment. There's an academic side okay. and uh, it's really more about information and survival. And it's actually quite relevant. And actually, if you look at the uh, the tenets of the, of the ninja, according to the guy who created that uh, master's degree program, uh, I don't have them all in mind, but things like um, uh, don't uh, don't make enemies, uh, make as many friends as possible, learn as many languages as possible, be good at imitating things, learn to blend in, f learn how to cross over boundaries without standing out, because it's all what the ninja would do. And and I said, that's liberal arts. I teach at the International College of Liberal Arts. That's what we're aiming for, right? Mm. Except maybe not the physical component. And uh, I said, well, that's really cool. And, and I asked him about this. Was, that sounds like liberal arts. Exactly. <laughs> Just yeah. Japanese. But I mean, I got off on a tangent there. But this, uh, so all of these things, ninja, uh, calligraphy, they all have great stories to tell. Mm. And there was this third level as well you mentioned. You had the oh, three. That was the practitioners, the people mm. who really learn to the survival mm. techniques and they learn how to do those skills. But for most of them, the only work they have is not as assassins, obviously, but as entertainment, you know. But yeah. they have to build the skills and they have to really be able to answer it. So they're more in the tourist industry. And that's just like went poof with yeah. the coronavirus. So, but they, but those people, they're so active. They're just still at it, you know, and they're finding ways to go online and, and appeal to the larger group, the dreamers. Yeah. Get them interested in the stories. And the people's stories, including I consider myself in that area, so writing articles, uh, doing podcasts, sharing ninja culture. And actually, I've been on, you had that ninja star you, you mm. showed, Shuri mm -hmm. uh, Ken, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, a friend of mine who is one is a real ninja, he was invited to be on this um, NHK, which is like the BBC of Japan. And uh, I got invited to, it's the second time I've been on the show. It's a live broadcast watched by most of the country. And, but I spend a lot of time on television. I work as a commentator. I've been in documentary. So I'm, I'm kind of used to that. But anyway, I get there and I dress like a ninja wearing the, the uniform that I was given to by the guy I just told you about, who's now farming the fields, right? So mm -hmm. I, it was kind of a really legitimate thing. And I was thinking, oh, this is nice dress like a ninja. Maybe ask some questions. And they said, oh, professor, what do you think? Oh, yeah. But there was no, you know, they didn't tell me what was going to happen. So then, of course, they had the real ninja there. And he says, oh, can you show us how to throw this star? So he's standing like 20, 30 feet away maybe four or five meters away from the target. So you needed two cameras. You had the target and then you had him. And he's saying that you have to clear your mind and focus and you don't throw it like with your arm. You release it. So your hand is like this, not like that. And 
it's kind of a little hard to visualize, but he said it's like cutting with a sword. Mm. And that's what shudi ken means. It's the the ken is a sword for the back of the hand or the palm of the hand. So that image was in my mind, and I was standing there with the rest of them. And suddenly the the uh, announcer says, "Oh wow, that was really uh, cool. Um, maybe we could have some of our guests trying." Ah, Williamson, you know. <laughs> oh, you know, nobody told me this, you know. So I'm like, that's the act I have to follow. I'd never done it before. I'd seen it a lot, but I never certainly never practiced. But all I had was, I had to clear my head of what if I make a mistake? What if I get embarrassed? What if I just, and obviously you can't back out of it. You have to do it, right? So I just stepped up to it, which is kind of a ninja thing to do. And I just had in my mind that one thing he said, it's just like cutting with a sword, which I had had practice with. So I just, spot, right in the target, right in the <laughs> And I was like, inside I was like, oh my God, <laughs> I can't believe that just happened, you know? But, you know, Huge relief. And then they had the other people try it and everybody threw the, it which way. One person hit the floor and it bounced and it was lax. It's a sharp object, right? Yeah. But uh, yeah, you know, you get in these situations. <laughs> so a few days later, I was in Kyoto for a totally different purpose. I got in a taxi and the driver looked at me and says, weren't you on TV the other day? So I said, yes. You know? <laughs> so that's <laughs> Oh, that's a, an amazing story. And what I love about it is also what, what you're basically sharing with us as well is you have this ancient tradition, even though the word ninja came, as you said, in 1920s, I didn't know yeah. that. But also we have this this ancient wisdom and, and all these techniques. Uh, yeah. And now uh, they are also sort of surviving and, and passing it on through storytelling, through stories, through performances, yeah. through entertainment. Yes, yes, yes. And and I, I think often when we think about arts or or culture that we think of someone having to write a play or a musician mm -hmm. performing, but this is it can be so and, and is so much more, mm. uh, and and uh, also passing on cultural traditions and and also making sure that uh, old knowledge is not forgotten. I think that's beautiful yeah. as a beautiful way of of understanding it. So thank you so much for sharing that. Well, so you're in Sweden, right? Yeah. I mean, near Mount Fuji here in Japan. Yeah. And we were talking and sharing with our guests, and uh, I hope we can maybe get some questions later. But that's pretty awesome, and that hasn't been possible until quite recently. Yeah. And 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 that that technology, which is digital, right? And it's but it's become so seamless. You don't have to know programming to use it. Yeah. Uh, and that if you can just connect with that, like Roger Hamilton, who's we both learned from with Wealth Dynamics, he's. He says that, well, actually, Society 5.0, which is a Japanese concept, yeah. the, uh, the, the economic organization, all these old, crusty old guys that came up with this concept, said that it's, there's going to be a digital layer on everything. Well, I didn't really understand that. Mm. So it's starting to appear, and, I, and I'm starting to depend on it. And the first step to that was this corona thing where all of our classes had to be shifted online. Mm. So I'm, I'm teaching Aikido and calligraphy online. I mean... Mm. It would be very easy to say, oh, I'm sorry, that just can't happen. Let's just postpone it. That, that would have been so easy to say. Yeah. I didn't want to do that. And so now I'm I'm giving feedback with, I'm having students send me videos just, just today. Mm. And a student from India who sent me a video of her doing the 21 basic kata, the basic forms, mm. uh, with the counts. She, bless her heart. She's doing her best. But she's only been doing this for five weeks. Yeah. You know. Uh, it's just a very short time and and maybe not we've only actually introduced some of them recently so i said well thank you so much uh her name is tanya i said thank you so much tanya do you mind if i share your videos oh please do so we shared them and then some of it was funny and some of it was just like uh, let's give a real quick example there was an exercise where you have to move your body say this is the spine you move your body and then your arms right but yeah. say the body has to stay straight but she was moving like this and then the arms. And so it had no power. So you kept, yeah. and I could have told her that till I was blue in the face. And, and I did, and I have, you know, and she, she just either didn't hear it or just didn't remember it. It didn't stick. But when I put that up there, it was a little bit embarrassing. It's like learning the language, right? But she gave me permission. And, and then, and I, I told her what she did. It was doing well. I said, this is awesome that you actually stepped forward and let me share this. And I, I can guarantee you everybody is doing at least the same thing and probably 10 more things worse. So you're already doing 80% really well. But there's a few things that if you change, it's going to be awesome. Do you mm. want to know what they are? Yes. So we did it. And in, in an hour's time, we covered all of them. 
And I, I swear, uh, Sophie, she was just so changed. I think she got more learning that she's not going to forget in that one hour. Yeah. Thanks to video feedback uh, on Zoom. Then she could have gotten if she'd come to class every time I tell her and I come back again. And she's just I, I told you last week, you know, or sometimes in when we're doing it in class for real, you know, 12 people in the class. I work on this group and I go to each. And I come back to the first one. I just told you a few minutes ago, you know, they just didn't know how to absorb but now you have to be really focused and have to absorb so i'm yeah. quite i'm thankful i mean not thankful for all the tragedy but um it has forced us to uh find the way to continue and to to continue to be creative and not just not be negative at all and actually do what we we might have wanted to do before but we never would have unless until we had to yeah, that's so true. And what you say about movement in front of camera, we've got many dancers and choreographers in this community uh, and many people who in various ways use their body. Uh, yeah. And I'm noticing more and more that uh, not only uh, practitioners themselves when they are dancers or uh, artists, uh, but they also more and more teach and train other people. And what yeah. you're saying right now is, is uh, this is a good example of how you can do that and, and also online help people and connect with people. Um, also, as artists, you can train and teach other people to do this. So that's inspiring to hear. Yeah. And and the technology will step up when there's a market. Like there's this thing called Pivo, and then maybe there's different products, but you put your iPhone on this stand and it optically tracks your movement. So you can mm. make really big movements and it's going to follow you. And you yeah. can take in photography, get like Bum, 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 bum. You mm. can show this. You can't do that with talking, you know? No. So bring it on. I mean, like, it's just amazing. Uh, if if you don't mind, I'd like to show just a few slides yeah. as examples. I probably don't have time to show all of them, but I'll just see if I can find a few that illustrate some of the things we've been talking about. Yeah, please do. Make this work. And in um, the meantime, while you do that, I just wanted to say to everyone who's joined this conversation, both live and, and will watch the replay afterwards, it's so great to see all of you here. And thank you for tuning in to Arts Dynamics. Uh, this is part of a bigger series where I'm interviewing people from all over the world. And today we've got Will from Japan, who's sharing all his expertise. And, and I'm, I'm really thrilled about that. And uh, we can post links then in the comments in the Facebook group, Arts Dynamics, uh, if you want to sort of, because you have some book tips, Will, I'd love to sort of get them down and, and also share them in the comments afterwards yeah. uh, and uh, also if you have any questions obviously just post them and, and if we're not able to pick them up during the live stream we'll just follow up afterwards so I'm just now going to add your, uh, your screen Will there it is okay so can you see what it says on the screen yes okay and you can see my face as well very well yes okay very good <laughs> uh, I can just see my screen I don't need to see my face um uh, and I'm not going to go through the whole presentation because it's just too much, but I'll just hit some spots like this is some a model that I came up with learning is moving from mystery to mastery. And it's using a martial arts concept called Shingitai or mind, skill and body. So you start on the upper left uh, on my screen anyway, of the mystery where it's all like really cool and you don't know what's happening. And it's just like and that's where you're in the discovery zone. And it's really pleasurable if you are willing to live with ambiguity. And then you move, but it's still kind of mental. You're not physically engaged. And you move more into the experiential realm. And then you cross over once you start to learn by practicing skill or techniques. You get into the practice zone, which gets you engaged. And then you move more to the lower right, which is performance, which is where you actually engage and demonstrate your mastery. So this is the model that I use to teach all my subjects. And then there's the, the 10,000 hours to mastery. Well, not so, according to Josh Kaufman in the first 20 hours of book I highly recommend. Now, I want to show you a photo of some, some of my calligraphy students, and you'll notice they're both female. And uh, the, my students are not like mostly female, but the ones that really do well seem to be ladies. And they're the An from Vietnam. She had never touched a brush in her life. And this is after just 16 class hours. Mm. And it's just awesome. So three different uh, script styles of this uh, Chinese character poem. And then Lena from Finland, she also mastered that. And the one she has in her left hand is the Iroha poem, which is all the Japanese syllabary, which is like the ABCs, but they're scrambled in a different order to make a poem. And they're not one of them is repeated. And it's really, really difficult to do that delicate style. And she's just did an awesome job. And then, but both of them were foreigners. And so, you know, so there, I mean, they can't say, well, you grew up with it. But, you know, the Japanese, again, two girls, they did this really nice calligraphy poems. 
And I'm just so proud of them. And I kind of measure my own progress as a teacher anyway, by what my students can do. Mm. And then let's see, I've done, this is a, a piece, okay, the, the Buddhist flower sermon. Uh, I'm, I'm going to skip a little bit. Uh, the, this is a haiga, which is a poetry poem. And um, the summer temple bell is just a name, a title I gave to it. But it, the translation is the coolness of summer carries the sound of the bell into the distance. And it was a haiku written by a, a haiku poet in, um, in the Edo period named Busson. He's a very famous guy. And I, I painted the picture and then I did the calligraphy for the poem in Japanese. And it, it just came out really well. I was, I, you know, the, it looked like the, the, the letters were just dropping from the cell, from the bell. And it also represents the summer, uh, the sound, sounds of a temple bell and the summer carrying into the distance. It just creates all this wonderful imagery. And yet, you know, we're talking about how some of the crafts people are dying out. The traditions are dying out. Well, some of this sensibility is dying out. Just last year, or, or just this winter, actually, in Hokkaido, there was a, a man on the 31st of December every year. They ring, the Buddhist temples ring the bell 108 times for the 108 sins of humankind. You thought seven sins were bad. Well, they came up with 108. Yeah. But anyway, it's a, it's a, it's done. it starts at 1130 and it goes to... 1230. And it's a tradition. It's been done for thousands of years. And it's kind of part of the tradition. Everybody's still awake. And they, but this one man in the neighborhood, he complained about these annoying temple bells. And he complained so loudly that they forced them to shut it down. So now they don't play the bells at all. Oh. Can you imagine? And it's like, what's the matter with these people? You know, they were never exposed to the sensibility. Okay. This one is a, I took the photo. This is 20 minutes from my house. I didn't doctor the photo at all. This is exactly how it looks. It's called the Sea of Clouds, which descends. I'm surrounded by mountains anyway. But at a certain time in the evening, uh, they descend on. It's just so beautiful. And then I added my calligraphy on top of it. Uh, that was done digitally, obviously. I didn't put it in the air. And this is a swift as the wind, still as the forest, invasive as fire, and immovable as the mountain, which is from the Art of War by Sun Tzu. Mm. Yeah. And then uh, let's see, let's see if I can share a video. This is a video. Uh, I'm studying the um, art of drawing the sword, and let me just explain what that is. So I've just I've just started studying within a year ago. So this is a recent thing that I took up. But there's a lot in common with Aikido, so give me some base. And it's the art of drawing the sword very smoothly and efficiently. And uh, it's it has like a, the, our particular school has a 300 year tradition and we're doing it all online. And actually, when we started doing it online, I started learning so fast. And every one of the, the teachers is saying the same thing. Our students are progressing much, much faster doing classes once a week for one hour online, sharing videos and getting immediate feedback than they were. It used to take months to get that done. So I'm just going to share this if I can. This is a pole that's standing behind, I'm going to turn around, it's behind me. And this represents the enemy who's sneaking up behind me to attack me with a sword. So let me just play. It's just about 40 seconds. We cannot see it here on the screen. Well, ah, okay. No. I don't know why that is. Uh, okay. So that's strange. I guess I need to share uh, a different thing. Well, maybe we'll try resharing a different uh, element later. So I'll yeah. just come back. We have time. Uh, okay, but this is what I do is I turn around and then shoot. shoot. <laughs> mm. Okay, uh, and the calligraphy behind me is I also painted for um, it has. Well, I'll, I'll share I'll share that when we get back to just the regular thing. But just please yeah. remember that calligraphy. And what else? Yeah, uh, can you see this? Yes. This is probably the largest piece of calligraphy I did. It was I did it and donated it to a. A temple built, it's about 20 minutes by car, 30 minutes by car from where I live. And this was temple was built in the 1500s. It has a really lots of history of the samurai at the time. And that's the head priest who's become a very good friend. He's a Zen master. And uh, what it says is, it's a Zen koan or proverb saying, have a cup of tea. And the story is, there was this old master in, in China and a, a, a brand new a student came to the temple for the first time, and the master looked at him and said, have you been here before? No, master, this is the first time. Go and have a cup of tea, was his answer. Mm -hmm. And then 
his, his the master's student was watching this. And then shortly after, a, a, a person who comes like all the time came to the temple and came up to the master and he says, have you been here before? Oh, master, I'm here every month. I've been learning from you for years. Go and have a cup of tea. And so then the, <laughs> so, so the, his student asked, why, why do you say the same, ask the same question and give the same answer to uh, the beginner who's never been here before to the person who's been studying for a long time? The master looks at him and he said, go and have a cup of tea. So mm -hmm. this is the end story, right? That's the end of the story, but <laughs> there's various interpretation. But the idea is, and the master here, uh, Master Furukawa said, the idea is that you you don't treat people you don't deal with people according to their rank or what you think you know about them. The only way you can really know a person, whether you've never met them before or whether you know them very well, is to calm your mind and sit and share a cup of tea and just be totally open to your senses and what they are in the moment. I said, well, that that's really cool, you know. Mm. So uh, I, I can I can get my my head around that, you know. And then he asked me to paint this, <laughs> it was the largest piece I've ever done with a huge brush. So it was like, you know, just giant, you know, brush. And I didn't have any chance to practice. This was the only chance that I did. It was just a one shot go. So this was my answer to the question. Yeah. To turn it back, go and have a cup of tea. And he was so pleased with it that um, uh, I decided to donate it to him. And it, we, we framed it, a really nice, expensive frame. And it's now on permanent display in this historic temple alongside, you know, works of ancient tea masters. And, you know, it's just such an honor mm. to have done that. And then what else can I show you? And um, it is. And I just have to add to that. Well, thank you so much for sharing that story. We all know that right now the world is in turmoil. So many things are happening. And uh, I mean, this whole conversation began, you know, where we are right now in the world. And even this last week, so much is going on and people are in, in various stages and, and uh, it's a lot of fear and, and, and anxiety and anger and all these things happening in the world right now. And what you just showed us and the way you describe that so beautifully it could also be an answer even to the current situation where we are right now in the world, whether it's in Japan or in Sweden or in the US or UK or wherever. It, the, the, the whole the whole idea of, of uh, like you mm. said, have a cup of tea, calm your mind, be yeah. open, embrace the other person without having... Yeah. yeah, yeah, so beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that, Will. Well, you know, even with... like. Uh, I was talking to my wife today about that very thing is how it's so easy when you've been with somebody for years and it's so easy to just, you know, just react. Yeah. And so, uh, we got into the story. It was really interesting. It says the Buddhist sutras all begin with one, the same phrase. Yeah. Uh, uh, which is, um, uh, let's see. I, I know it in Japanese. I'm trying to uh, find it in uh, how to translate into English. Okay. Nyo, uh, okay. Nyoze gamon. Okay, there's four characters, and it means, thus I heard, or these ears heard. And then mm. they say what the master said. And the Buddha, at the end of his life, had 500 close disciples. And all of the sutras that we know today, like the Heart Sutra, the Diamond Sutra, the ones that have been passed on over time, they were not, they agreed right after the Buddha died that they would not publish it unless all 500 of his disciples could say, yes, I heard that said. This is what I remember. This is what I want to wrote, write that he said, because the Buddha didn't write anything himself. Yeah. But he had to get agreement from 500 people. Yes, I heard him say that once. Yeah. Otherwise, they wouldn't publish it. Wow. So even so, how many years ago? That was 500 BC, right? <laughs> BC, yeah. right? But uh, that was around the same time, right? Uh, yeah. And now there are 31 schools of Buddhism, and everybody comes up their own, you know, it's pretty interesting. But yeah, um, it is. It is show you this piece of calligraphy, which um, this is, uh, the character means sincerity. Mm. And uh, I can explain it. There's two parts of it. This means speech or words, and this means to become. And so, but it's one character. So it means that words become real. Words are reality. So be careful of what you say. Be careful of the commitments you make. Yeah. And and this was, this is part of the Samurai Code. Yeah. And uh, and and so they they would really take care with their speech and they would take care to like 
honor their commitments and things like that. Yeah. And but also about stories, because what the stories you tell then become or or remain. And yeah. so that we can help the artists and craftsmen of the past who are still with us, but are connected more to the past than we are. Yeah. Because of their experience for previous generations is to help them tell their stories mm. and help them get money, buy things from them. Cause that's the, you know, if they were, if they could actually earn some money, they could pay some younger students. Right. Yeah. That's so true. And what you say about the whole, you know, the core values and, and, and uh, being true to those, I, I think that's so important. Uh, and I stress that also within the arts, uh, within arts dynamics, um, as you know, it is based also on, on Rudy Hamilton's so wealth dynamics and talent dynamics, which is all about that, all the understanding of energies and how things flow, but also yeah. having those criteria uh, of, of, uh, and disciplines that you follow. There are certain yeah. rules and guidelines you have to follow, and that will allow for you to unleash creativity and, and for you to do good things in the world. But it comes also with responsibility and to be mindful of what you're saying and, and what you're doing. And, and I think uh, if I could just say another word about Namba, because it's not a familiar term for most people, mm. but it, it, uh, I define it as the art of physical finesse, mm. not fitness, but finesse. Mm. And I, I've been studying Namba now for a long time i got interested in it because my aikido sensei mentioned this is the way the summer i used to walk and i said so this namba walking is so cool and mm. i started investigating and i realized that the art of physical finesse is at the essence of all of the japanese not only martial arts and samurai arts but even the 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 craftsmen even the way people would walk and run in the edo period so i really got into this and uh, i actually did a tedx talk on it it's called tedx kg uh if you search ted tedx kg and then my name or Namba, N-A-N-B-A, uh, it'll come up and you'll see me speaking Japanese with English subtitles, which is real kick, you know. <laughs> you can follow it, but it's you know, translated. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so Namba uh, to me has a special connection for especially musicians, but also artists. And I've been experimenting with this myself. Mm. And the reason is that the man I learned Namba from, we're actually the same age, but he has taught at Toho Gakuen, which is the Japan's leading conservatory of classical music. Uh, Osawa Seiji, you know, the famous conductor, he, he was the first year graduate from that school. It has a really nice tradition. Uh, and the, the, the people that graduate from there uh, go on to become, you know, they usually go uh, to Europe or they join world class orchestras or, uh, or they, they work in the classical mu music field. So yeah. Toho Gaku School of Music is very well known. But anyway, my friend Yano Sensei has taught, he's just retired. But he's taught there, uh, he was teaching physical education to the students. And the first thing it says is, you can't teach them any ball sports. Why? Because they can't injure their fingers. That would ruin their future. Mm. Ah, okay. And, and don't teach them anything strenuous. So what can I do? So it was like, can't do this. And it ended up like he could teach them swimming and running maybe, you know. Mm. So anyway, but he started to you know, talk to the students. What are your problems? And a lot of them had stress anxieties related to performance, expectations, and also, you know, you have to practice 10 to 12 hours a day to even compete with your fellow students. And then you got to perform in the concours, you know, in front of, you know, and then only one person wins and maybe there's a few. So it's really, really hard. And some of them say, because they've been doing piano or violin or whatever since they were like three by the time they even knew their what their name was, they were already doing it because their mother wanted them to do it. Their parents wanted them to do it. And some of them have serious self-doubts about, should I really be doing this? Mm -hmm. My daughter actually went there for a year and uh, she decided this because she'd been doing piano a long time. And she decided, sorry, this is, you know, she still plays piano, does it beautifully. But mm -hmm. she just decided that, that was not the past she wanted. So it's good for you, you know. Yeah. I don't have to pay the tuition now. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I respected her decision. But then uh, I learned a lot about musicians and their troubles. And uh, and I even met some professional musicians, like first violin of the top orchestra in Japan. He'd been practicing violin since he was five. He was 55 at the time. He had injured his body so much just from the violin or the way he practiced or the way he failed to tune his body. He could play at the first violin. He was the first violin for the top orchestra. He could yeah. do that, but he couldn't drive a car. He couldn't belt 
tie his own belt buckle. He couldn't use a knife and fork. Yeah. He had become a slave of the instrument. That's just not, you know, there's got to be a way because eventually he won't even be able to play. I mean, he's just ruined his body. Yeah. So I thought, how does Namba apply to that? So self-tuning to pr protect yourself from over-practice. Tune mm. your body first, practice, and then you're going to get in a certain mode from playing, which is all right, but you got to get back to your neutral mode. So mm. self-tuning, you can use Namba for that. And then accelerated mastery, the 20-hour principle. I mean, you're not going to master your craft in 20 hours, but you might have to master a performance piece that's coming up like next Tuesday, right? Or yeah. there's a deadline, right? And the pressure of that. So if you can just really focus on how to practice and rehearse and get there. And then the third thing was how you improve your rehearsal time so that when you go on the stage, you can be just totally present and physically present and mentally present and just deal with the moment and the whole, everything's there with you. And I do this with calligraphy. I paint in front of the camera. I paint mm -hmm. television. And I've learned how to do that. Yeah. It's not me. Well, what if I make a mistake? It's not about that. It's everybody. Please watch. Everybody come in. I need your energy. Yeah. And I have to say, well, I'm so, so happy that you are now moving also your expertise more online. And for those of you, you're being very humble about this, but just know that Will is, is a top expert in these fields that you're just mentioning. And the fact that you now have an, on, a, an online course coming out, you're doing yeah, so teaching number. Exactly. Link. It's, uh, it's called Namba Dynamics, the, the Japanese art of physical finesse. Mm. It's, a, it's a 20 lesson online course that's completely uh, yeah. you can do it yourself. But also I'm start, I've started a Facebook group and I will do monthly Facebook lives where I can interact with people who have specific questions. Yeah. I can also do one on one coaching. If somebody wants to, uh, I've got a performance coming up. How can I apply Namba for this? That yeah. I just work with people because I, but at the same time, you have to be able to do it at your own pace. So true. And what we'll do is, just so you know, for those of you tuning into this live class, I don't normally really promote, uh, you know, other products and courses. I need to know that they are of top quality. It's that integrity again. But knowing well, and I, because you also taught us in Japan, and I've been with you since then, I just know that this is something that's very beneficial to our industry. Uh, so I'm, I'm very happy that you're doing this, and I look forward to seeing the results. And we would definitely share the link uh, in our community. Well, um, and KG, look for TEDx KG Namba, and you can watch that and get an idea of what it what it looks like and how it applies. Because I've used some instrument, uh, some examples from musicians, yeah, and sports as well from that. It's been also used by Olympic athletes. Uh, the uh, uh, Takahashi Naoko, who won the Sydney Olympics in two thousand. Yeah, um, very number powerful. One. Yeah, very, very powerful. And now we're sort of getting closer to wrap things up. Uh, and uh, before we sort of uh, end this session, I could sit here for hours and just listen and learn from you. Uh, but uh, I just wanted to ask you all finally, before we sort of break up for this particular one, first of all, say thank you again for, for being here with us and sharing these stories with us. Sort of what's your next step now? You've got the course coming up. You've got your website, Samurai Walk. I know you've got a newsletter because I just signed yes. up to it. Yes. So, what, so what are your plans moving forward? Okay. Well, from where you are right now, brief, just a, a, briefly, a brief version. Yes. Very briefly. I'm going to move all of my content that I can online, but I'm going to supplement it with as full of, as possible an interactive presence online. Yeah. And then when then once I've got that running and I know that it's working, then when it's easier to travel and easier to meet people, I'm here, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but that's the easy part. That's, it's going to be easier to come back, go back to the way things were, but it, but the hard part was setting it up online and still making it viable. Yeah. True. But the technology has just improved so much. I couldn't believe how it was challenging, but you know, you learn the new technology, like a ninja, you got to just keep learning. Yeah. Right? Jup, jup, jup. <laughs> With that focus and flow. That's yeah. really awesome. Well, with that, have I forgotten to ask you anything, anything you would like well, to share? One of the, the next course I'm working on is going to be mm -hmm. called Legendary, Legendary Ikigai Storytelling. So it's oh. stories about your passion, purpose, and uh, uh, talents and business. Just how you talk about your craft. Because yeah. it's the storytelling and how you draw other people about that. Because I do a lot of television work. How you draw them out. And just let's get the storytelling going because that connects the layers. Yeah, fantastic. Sign me up already. I'd love to yeah. find out more about 
<laughs> well, uh, with that, I again just want to say thank you to everyone who's tuned in to this live stream session and might watch the replay. If you want to find out more about Arts Dynamics, uh, which is behind sort of Arts Dynamics talks, go to artsdynamics.com. We're also just open up um, the uh, doors to an Arts Dynamics Entrepreneur Mastermind for artists and creatives who want to sort of take the next step and get that support. And, and also where you're able to connect with awesome people like Will and uh, other people in this arts community. And also, I'd love to hear from you who've joined this call. What was your biggest takeaway, your biggest learning, maybe something that really inspired you? Uh, that would be great. And as I said, we'll post uh, the link also for you, Will, to your website and for people who want to find out more about what you do. I'm really excited and looking forward to uh, seeing all your courses and everything that you've got coming up. So with that, thank you so much, Will. And uh, have a wonderful day. And let's just uh, reconnect like we normally do in all our various channels. <laughs> and I hope to be able to bring you back soon again for more chats. And um, Indeed, yeah, if um, it shows the number, we can walk and do all the things you mentioned. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So take care. And okay. uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Hello, it's Sophie again. Thank you for listening. And I'm just here to say again that you are more than welcome to join us on social media. Just look for Arts Dynamics. And also, if you want more news and updates, go to our website, artsdynamics.com and sign up to the newsletter where you'll get some free treats, some resources and strategies and tools for free to help you pivot and thrive in the months and years to come. So with that, I wish you a wonderful rest of the day and look forward to welcoming you back to the next episode. Take care now. Bye.